Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So, uh, topic for today. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. It's kind of kind of a, a new buzzword, but uh, the Great Resignation. Uh, I I'm familiar with this kind of in, in two parts. One, as an employee, of course, um, there. In the tech world specifically, I, I know uh, the market is just very hot. A lot of organizations are growing, um, and so so you just get a lot of different offers for different companies. Maybe that's sparked by the pandemic as we shift to digital and whatnot, and some um, some areas are just growing tremendously fast, um, possibly. But but regardless, uh, there's that side of it. But then also, you know, I, I'm a manager in my position, and so obviously I'm, I'm dealing with other employees that are being drawn. And so there's also, you know, my mind's thinking about uh, retention. And if you, if you kind of go to the default uh, business insight uh, articles or magazines, you see some pretty, pretty boring um, kind of classic data-driven uh, strategies around this. And, uh, and I, I think it could be helpful to be reframed. Um, and so I, I wanted to pick your brain on, on those two pieces. One, as an employee, particularly as a believer, is there some validity to just the integrity to not be drawn um, purely for lucrative opportunities elsewhere, but, but genuinely you know, sensing your calling and, and, and staying at a place and, and being committed to a, a single you know, place of employment? And then second, as an employer or being on the management side of employment, um, how do you uh, kind of work through this, this great resignation and, and uh, in, I don't know, incentivizing or providing opportunities or a better vision of some sort uh, for your employees uh, to stay and, 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 and attempting to help mitigate some of the, the losses, the attrition? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so listeners, I hadn't heard that much about the Great Resignation, but it, it, uh, it is out there in the blogosphere, and and so uh, here we are. I'm, I'm fairly new to it, so Pat put me onto it, and it certainly makes sense when you you do read about uh, the wave of uh, resignations. People, a lot of them, deciding uh, to be Johnny Paycheck. Anybody remember that old country song? <laughs> I I do not. Oh my gosh! I, although I was not allowed to listen to country as a kid, well, I, and <laughs> I wasn't either, which is really a blessing. Now we just lost some. Co- <laughs> now Johnny Paycheck's big hit was "You Can Take This Job and Shove It," and uh, great little song. You can take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. <laughs> um, so it seems to me. So I don't think it obviously is not a simple answer. Uh, sure. I do know that, uh, for example, Derek Thompson in The Atlantic said, the great resignation is a great thing and keeps getting greater and greater. And by that, he means low-income people are making more. And so this uh, 
I'm quitting here to go work over here. I'm quitting here to go work here. I'm quitting here to go work in an Amazon warehouse and so on and so forth. Uh, there, there may be some validity to that, but let me suggest uh, two things that might be at work here. And, and there is no simple answer. Um, but I do think it's part and parcel with living in a world that um, Max Weber called uh, disenchantment. And Weber wrote that on his book on the Protestant work ethic. What was the connection to, to disenchantment? For the yes. Well, let me put it in uh, two ways. Um, first, one would be meaning, and the second will be monetizing. So, uh, you know, I went to cemetery for four years. I'm sorry, seminary. And um, so we were always taught to alliterate or put everything, you know, start everything with R or M or B or, <laughs> and uh, keep it three points. But I, so I just abused that. It's just two, but they both start with M. Meaning and the monetization. By that, I mean that uh, when the Harvard Business Review uh, wrote about this same problem, uh, they basically turn it into. Uh, monetizing that is finding a way to retain pay more raise wages so on and so forth and there's something in that that reflects what uh, weber spoke about it's the another word for it is the mathematization of the world and mathematization moves everything down to can you scale it can you put it in code can you make money off it can you make more money off it? Can you actually aggregate money uh, via the internet so you can make a disproportionate amount of money? Um, but what's lacking, Weber meant, is ultimately, what's it all about? Why? Why work? And even, so most of these writers are relatively well off in writing about, well, here's the upside of the Great Recession. People are saying, you can take this job and shove it, or they're going to work uh, somewhere where the minimum wage is higher than it used to be. The only problem is, at this point, that's being negated by inflation. Hmm. So I don't know if you pumped gas recently <laughs> or been to a grocery store. A little more expensive. A little more expensive. In fact, the correlation between that, because you have um, now, again, we are a nonpartisan, but uh, institute or nonpartisan uh, podcast, if you want to put it that way. But when you have uh, more money pumped in to the system, as it happened this past year, chasing fewer goods, that's Econ 101. Yeah, sure. And so if gas goes to $4 with the recent refinery uh, explosion uh, yesterday in Texas, the possibility six months out of gas being four, and you are working at uh, a warehouse somewhere, and you're making $2 more an hour than you were, 
depending on your, the cost of gas and food and what have you, and rent and utilities this winter, you'll actually net less. Hmm. So when it, this is a problem with monetization, where everything is monetized. It is a problem I have a lot of it with uh, those people who are good at putting together platforms for online education. They're lousy at answering this question. What is education all about? It becomes nothing more than content delivery that can be scaled up so that you can have a course where a million people are taking it at the same time. And because you charge 50 cents, say, you're, you, you're making 500,000 you know, whatever the numbers are. Right. The point is it becomes monetized. But it doesn't answer the question of, but why educate? What's it about? I find the tin air in, uh, uh, by most people in the tech world is astounding. So they don't ask. They mm. don't ask to what end. For the listeners who enjoy a little bit of poetry or just good reading, uh, very short little message. Uh, T.S. Eliot asked that question. Uh, I believe it was, I'm not sure the exact year, in the 1940s at the University of Chicago. And he asked, uh, to what end? What end education? As you know, the University of Chicago today is a well, considered one of the premier great books schools or liberal arts education. It was founded as a Baptist college. Uh, it's drifted from those moorings quite a bit, <clears throat> but at least it was asking this question, why? So you, you even seen the great resignation from uh, Gen Z wanting to go to college. Because they ask, to what end? Hmm, right. Well, there's so there there's the, the low income that that makes sense. Um, I think I think there's a little bit even more justification there, e even amidst inflation and, and whatnot. But what I, what I find fascinating is even at the other end of the spectrum in in tech, where salaries are already disproportionately high, you have uh, I think the the question often comes up, um, but could I make more elsewhere? Not do I make yeah. enough, not do I need more, but could I make more? Yeah. And it's hard for me not to connect that with some sense of, I'm not sure that's the right question, uh, because it does just to seek a financial opportunity or even the freedom to to have uh, yeah, to, to have more meaning in the grass that is greener, you know, to see somewhere else and go, mm, I'm not really connecting to my current employer and so over there, I think I would, I would find more meaning in that, that field. Um, and maybe, maybe I'm just crazy, but part of me senses this element of like, there seems to be almost a, a loss of integrity that I, I, that makes me hesitant to take an opportunity elsewhere, you know, for me even, cause I've only been at my position, um, you know, for, for less than a year now. And so I've, I, there's just something about that, like, uh, there's just no way I could leave right now. I haven't, I haven't stuck it out long enough to really, uh, I don't know if it's make a difference in my current uh, role or to, to help 
those around me in my current world. I'm, I'm not quite sure what it is, but something, there's some connection to integrity there that uh, I'm struggling to put words to, as you can tell. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if, if that's just, uh, I don't know. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm curious if there's validity to that feeling mm-hmm. or if there's something there that I'm, I'm sniffing at. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. Um, so we always tell listeners and we just sort of follow some breadcrumbs or trail. So we, we don't know exactly where this is going to go, except that I think we just got a little picture going to where, where we're going this morning. And it's this, why uh, did Weber call the Protestant work ethic and, and, and others? Mm. What's different about the Protestant? So I'd make it 500 years old versus perhaps a work ethic that goes back 2000 years or 5,000 years. I'm going to guess the enlightenment comes in here somewhere. Well, they are, you know, they came both birthed from the same uterine canal at the same time. So they are, if they're not, if they're not identical twins they're fraternal or they're kissing cousins. (laughs) Um, But um, yeah, it has, it has to do with, um, uh, fascinating even uh, a year ago uh, David Brooks uh, wrote a piece I can't remember anything about it but he did highlight this that um, prior to uh, this it was called Catholic social thought now uh, for those who get the heebie-jeebies when they think uh, Roman Catholicism uh, think of the word Catholic for what it actually means which is the the, the church the universal it means universal so uh in a, in a good Protestant church, if you recite the Nicene Creed, you're going to read. You're going to recite, "We believe in one holy yeah, Catholic Church, Catholic Apostolic Church, Catholic community universal, one body, one baptism, one belief, one Lord, one faith, so on and so forth." Apostolic, referring to that's what Irenaeus used the term evangelical. That is, those who believe in the authority of the apostles' writing. So, I am an evangelical Catholic evangelical in the sense of i know it's used entirely differently today or almost entirely differently the word but that's what it means that the apostles affirm the apostles teaching catholic little c there is one faith one body one bride one church catholic evangelical catholic now out of that came what was called catholic social thought so here we go it's fun. I hadn't, I didn't see this coming. <laughs> and this will contrast with Protestant. I want you to imagine um, the infinity symbol. Mm-hmm. So you have, and so describe it for listeners, because yeah. it could be just because we're finite. This the whole symbol might be beyond us. <laughs> Go you could almost very. You could you could take like the number eight, turn it mm-hmm. sideways. Um, and that'd be close. Um, there you go. But it's essentially two loops that are interconnected. Yes. So Catholic social thought and uh, has this uh, picture of uh, uh, the infinity because they feel at work is actually rooted in something that goes well beyond us. Meta, it, it, it'll go out into eternity. It's, 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 it's uh, almost infinite. The right side of that loop just imagine the words social well-being. And well-being is the Hebrew word what? Shalom. There you go. 
So on the right is shalom, and the left is uh, economic prosperity. Hmm. Now, when I was a little kid, I also had a uh, those little HO railroad tracks, and you could you could build a figure eight. It just keeps going around and around, looping and looping and looping, and that actually eerily, well before we understand neuroscience, actually reflects how the brain works. It's endless looping between the two. And I don't mean to mystify or stump you, listeners, so keep imagining the infinity. But again, they knew nothing about neuroscience. That's not my point. But it is fascinating to me that the right hemisphere, which is considered to be widely broadly vigilant sees the big picture is what drives the left hemisphere which is narrowly focused and is more given to monetizing Mm. Hmm. but the right hemisphere is more given to meaning And it's supposed to be the one that drives the entire equation. Thus, you have an opportunity to work somewhere, and you all of our sensations of life, what we taste, touch and taste and feel and everything, through our nerve endings, is dumped into the right hemisphere, not the left. The left has no direct contact with reality. The right does. And it's the right that delivers these experiences that present themselves to us to the left which the left then represents them represents them in other words it tries to go okay that goes in column a that goes in column b so on and so forth but imagine being in a world that biases the left hemisphere which we know if you start in the left you end up with abstractions concepts theories worldviews, but no direct contact with reality. And in fact, the left hemisphere, if you start there, shuts out the right. It's sort of like, I can figure this out. That, my friends, is the Enlightenment. Best book on this, Ian McGilchrist, The Master and His Emissary. A very accessible book by him you can buy online is Two Ways of Knowing. It's called, Google it. Cost, doesn't cost much. Two ways of knowing is sort of a summation of his book, as there is a, a TED Talk which has been put to an RSA animate. And if you Google an RSA animate, Ian McGilchrist, you'll see the same essential argument. Problem is after 500 years, what begins as a somewhat basic, somewhat of a bias, becomes a cultural bias. And 500 years later, it's estimated in the Western world, and we say Western, we mean originally Europe, United States, America, and the first or the developed cities of the world where we have taken Western thought. You have a bias for the left hemisphere is so strong that Gilchrist puts it this way, the left can only then reflect back what it knows, it knows, it knows, it knows doesn't learn anything new, doesn't widen the lens at all. And so if the right is where we find meaning, but the left is good at, for example, making things and monetizing them, but all we do is bias the left, 
we're looking at the end of a 500 year process where the winners are those who can monetize it, but hardly anybody can make meaning of it. Hmm. Disenchantment is hmm. what it's called. And so this whole backdrop of being in an enchanting world. So the doing of most everything could be glorious in terms of it has meaning, has been erased for, hmm, I wonder if I get this better opportunity here. I wonder if this, uh, I might make more money here. Uh, and, and I get it. I get it in this regard. The people who mostly write about this, again, are the ones who are the fortunate 15%, if you want to call it that. They're doing really well. and the But the wage disparity is growing and has over the last 10, 20, 30 years. And, and one of the downsides in the Internet, I believe it was... Uh, Buckley spoke about this with telecommunications is the have-nots are going to become more and more aware of all that they don't have. Mm -hmm. And that will stir resentment. It will stir in some, I want a bigger slice of the pie. Uh, that will stir opportunism. It will stir redistribution. Um, uh, it will stir in some resentment. The system is rigged. And uh, so the system's a problem. It stirs all sorts of hogwash. There's a tad bit of truth probably in all of it, all of those. But they can't make meaning out of it. They can't make meaning. Because meaning is uncovered or discovered in only an enchanted world where it could actually be meaningful to make, in one sense, relatively little by serving the dying. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay, this is, this is definitely helpful. I'm thinking about... Um, just another conversation I had with a friend where um, we were talking about yeah his, his current his current employment um, the wage that he was receiving and how there was um, you know kind of like a there's only so much work required for that pay and uh, yeah I mean there, there was just like there was definitely a, a disconnect with the meaning of why why that that uh yeah with the meaning of his work yeah i i'll throw on real quickly i had a i was talking to someone about a year ago and christian and you know all this in the end he goes well uh, this is all fine but you know ultimately markets determine value and i, just, I, I was stunned mm. Mm. Yep. what yeah so so as as an employee I do think there is opportunity here for believers to be uh, different, 
you know, to this, it's, it's almost like there's, there's a salt and light opportunity here. Yes. Yeah. Which is, yeah, it's kind of, kind of wild. So well, I'm curious what, you know, what's, for example, if you look at the great resignation and you notice, Oh, wait a second. Uh, I don't think this is the case, but wow. How fascinating would it be if you notice there's, a, there's actually a trend, uh, that is different for Christians of any type, Catholic, evangelical, whatever. Mm-hmm. Where you see, um, for some reason, this great resignation isn't isn't it doesn't have the same impact. Why is that? You know, why is that? And again, I don't necessarily think that's going to align with reality because I, I think it's likely most believers don't don't have this connection that you're talking about. We've we've fallen into the trap as well. Um, but there's there's this connection to meaning that could be a marker that could be salt and light, which is which is really really cool. And so my question then is. You know, e- even as I sit in this position, and I'm I'm grasping a little bit of what you're saying. We've had hours of conversations. What what's your uh, what's your what's your recommendation for me uh, or or people in my position uh, to to kind of rediscover meaning? Um, you know, I was even just thinking, for example, this would be this would be really helpful, I think, for me to reflect and spend some time maybe journaling or something about uh why am i at my current position other other than to 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 make a you know to earn earn a living why is it why is it i'm here uh and and spending further time reflecting on that i'm curious if you have if you have recommendations that may help flesh that out a little bit more yeah yeah that's a good question and i, and I do and i think these are things that of um nothing original here but um, if in fact part of the problem is uh, the disenchantment of the modern world and again the disenchantment of the modern world comes down to uh, Weber and others talking about uh, we, cre- we create more material goods than ever before and we're more disenchanted say what? Hmm, yeah and um, I know I sound, like, I sound like I'm from the stone age but you know, and Kathy and I married 40 years ago. We lived in this tiny little cottage in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, <laughs> uh, built on piers because the land's too soggy. So, uh, you know, it's a little one-story frame. I was thinking about it the other day. We rented for 300 a month. My goodness. Uh, two little bedrooms, a little living room. Um, I mean, we were so close to one another. We got back from our honeymoon. My bride's in there chopping vegetables, and I hear her scream. And my first thought was, "Oh no, I'm now married to a woman that has only three fingers." <laughs> and I race in there. And it's because when she when she closed the drawer, there were two cock- cockroaches on her on her shirt that weren't there. Oh no! That, yes, and that, and that would cause me to scream like that. And, and I go, <laughs> it, 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 "I'm not glorifying the, this. Uh, let's all be poor." Or uh, I'm not glorifying simplicity, but there, but there is, there is this. Um, a wise sage in scriptures recorded as saying this: "Give me neither poverty nor riches. Poverty, and I might steal; riches, and I might forget God." Now. Paddle sound like uh, um, God's beating up on rich people. He's not. <laughs> I love. Uh, I can't remember who he said. He goes, 
you can tell what God thinks about riches. Look who he, look who he gives them. Look who he gives the money to. Look at the kind of people who are rich. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not making this argument. I am making this argument. I'm not making this argument. The Apostle Paul is who Paul wrote me a couple of things that I think help us get toward meaning. And it's this: first of all, godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by drum roll. Contentment. Mm. Now, why have we forgotten that? Hmm. Oh, man. Number of reasons for that. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, Paul also wrote at one point in his life I've been rich and I've been poor, but I've learned to be content in all circumstances. Part of the disenchantment of the world is driving discontent. It's nurturing it, leveraging it, fostering it. Hmm. And a four-letter word for me is HGTV. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so What's true. The irony is the number of young people John and Bev are looking for their first home and they walk in <laughs> I can't cook in here <laughs> really the appliances don't work there's not enough room it was quite interesting when Deng opened China in 1989 and the West came flooding in within about 15 years or somewhere, there's a study showed the average apartment or home in China was now four times larger than it had been for the last hundred years. One out of four Chinese children were now called little Buddhas. They were so fat, eating Western food. But more importantly, what, what Western media does is foster discontent. In many ways, it is what toppled the former Soviet Union. I was there in 1988, a year before it fell. I didn't know it was going to fall, but I'll never forget being in Latvia, Estonia, and my guide, who they warned us, I remember she's KGB. Well, whether she knew it was or not, we were one place and we were looking at some goods, and she said, don't buy that. That's crap. We made it. Well, the problem is, it was the first time you could, you could actually pick up in Estonia TV from television from Sweden in Switzerland, Sweden rather. And so you look out the window and you see these old, old Fiat design called Lada's, L-A-T-A. They were terrible little cars always mm. breaking down. And you look on the TV and there's a Saab back when there was such a thing. And you go, it really was a people going, what the hell? We've been lied to. We want those cars. And I think part of what drives this thing is this, this great disenchantment is, what the hell? He makes that much? I want that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, man. So, so this, is, this is great. So, so what's coming to mind for me is my initial thought was, how do I, 
how do I kind of rediscover meaning a little bit if I've lost that at my current place? Which I think, I think from what you said, there's, there's definitely validity to that. But there's also that is still in the consumer frame, which is still some sense of what meaning am I getting from my current place of employment? And what you're bringing into play here is almost this, uh, there may be a bit of conviction here, which is uh, have I lost contentment? Is, is this a, a, a growth area for me spiritually to develop contentment where I'm at? Because that is an important thing that Paul, Paul stresses. And so there's, there's kind of a, a mix here. This is, this is interesting. I think, uh, Liz, I'll speak from first-hand experience. This, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's salt and light. Salt is a preservative. Light is a, is a, it just illuminates mm. why. And we would benefit, I think the world would benefit from Christians in all walks of life and all walks of work who actually preserved a tradition prior to the Protestant work ethic of why we work mm. and we're light to shed some light on why we work, meaning in a left hemisphere biased world, it's going to be primarily monetizing, scaling. Those are not inherently bad. Right. But when at least a few years ago, the most financially lucrative online program comes out of, what might as well name it, what the heck, Liberty University. Hmm. It's a cash cow for what I think is a very mediocre understanding of the Christian faith and education. Now, if I lose some listeners because they sent their kids to Liberty, okay, I'll live with that. We only have three and we're down to two. That's still a, what is that, a 33% loss. Anyway, hmm. uh, see how I monetize that so quickly? <laughs> I think we have opportunities to be salt and light. And I think that what this does is it, this, this accounts for what we don't see with the rising enlightenment and why I read biographies of saints from 2,000 and 1,800 years ago and 1,700 years ago and 1,500 years ago is they understood that affluence, that is shalom, that's that right brain aspect, the uh, broader uh, flourishing of all, uh, does require capital, intellectual, cultural, financial. And so that sort of view of, of, uh, of shalom means the flourishing of all, rising tide lifts all boats. You can find all through history, Christians going, well, um, Mr. Guinness starting the brewery in 1759 for the Shalom of Dublin. But so he had to know how to monetize, he had to know how to read a P&L, whatever it had been back then. But the fact of the matter, it wasn't um, so I can corner the market on beer and make the most amount of money on beer with no thought to, but is it crappy beer? Is it good beer? Why beer? The why beer 
actually is rich in the tradition of Christianity. So listeners, I would encourage, here's two books you would enjoy reading. Are Guinness and the Search for God. Great history of the history of beer and the Christian tradition. Guinness and the Search for God. And the other book is by John Schneider called The Good of Affluence. The good, the inherent good of affluence. Affluence is another word for well-being. And affluence, Schneider will point out, is God's preferred condition for all. That's right brain. Social well-being. Money is a commodity, one amongst many necessary for that condition. Left brain. Economic prosperity. When you don't have the right brain emphasis, you end up with you end up with two things, and, and that's why I'm you know I'm not impressed with conservatism or progressivism. The divide is not between conservative and liberal. Liberal means generous, conservative means preserved. Christians ought to be both. Generous, open to what we have not known about history and what have you, or God or whatever, you know, the cloud of unknowing entering all this at the same time. Uh, you know, you know, preserve and conserve great tradition. We're often part of a group that we hate tradition. We just want to read the Bible. But tradition is, is valuable. And we're going to be conservative and liberal. If liberal goes too far, it becomes what's today called progressivism. When conservative goes too far, it becomes this hard and fast conservatism. And both are bad. And here's why. You watch what happens when someone gets in charge of one of these two extremes. That is, sits at the helm. Watch what happens with their income. And I'll leave it at that. Because this goes both ways. That one of the most popular pastors way over here on the conservatism side is also one of the wealthiest men in America. Hmm. And over here on the progressive side are some of the wealthiest people in the country bemoaning the, the low wages of the people they love so dearly. Neither, in my opinion, understands the meaning of work and what is social well-being. And both would benefit from understanding better Catholic social thought. Now, I don't expect them to actually read about that. So back to your point, Pat. That's the third thing I would encourage Christians to do is Google Catholic social thought. So the good of affluence, set aside the academic part of that book. It's not a very big book, but you can zip right through to get the big idea. Um, you can read about God's preferred condition. And then, um, what was, the, what was the other book we mentioned? Guinness. Yeah. And then uh, we head starts to spin a little bit, uh, grab a Guinness, uh, <laughs> open it, and read that book. That's a fun read. And then finally, yeah, I just thought of this. If you're in the mood, if you're a little better reader, that is, 
your brain neuro, your neural pathways you've carved a little deeper so you can go into the stuff that's a little deeper than what we see today and i don't say that pejoratively it's just a fact there just aren't that many great readers out there anymore i would encourage you to read john Kay's book other people's money other people's money the real business of finance and again if you're familiar with max weber the disenchantment of the world you will be you will see the disenchantment leak into the real business of finance and he is title his title is taken from the morning in adam smith's the wealth of the nations that essentially Things are a little different when you're dealing with other people's money, carelessness. And so I, I, I feel for my friends who are in the financial advisory industry, because can you imagine sitting down with your financial advisor and them, and them saying, <clears throat> now, we've been thinking about the uh, social well-being of all. And that's guided a lot of our thinking here in your investment portfolio, which has actually gone down a little bit. But we think it's going to bring economic prosperity to others. <laughs> you already got your iPhone out, looking, Googling financial advisors. <laughs> so the your K teaches at London School of Economics. He's a delightful writer. And the most popular, most common phrase, not popular, most common phrase in this book is even one of the, I believe one of the chapter titles is, I'll be gone, you'll be gone. And what he means by that is you can try to raise issues of economic prosperity for all or uh, unfunded liabilities or federal ballooning debt, state debt, personal debt. Um, you can run the figures out and say what, what we're leaving for our kids and grandkids. And the average person will say, well, I'll be gone. You'll be gone. 